This podcast is supported by our friends at Birkenstock Australia. For a quarter of a millennium, Birkenstock has been applying its craft to footwear. The anatomically shaped design of the Birkenstock footbed reflects a footprint in the sand, which enables natural walking, even on the hard surfaces of modern cities. Find out more at birkenstock.com.au. Hi, it's Nathan with you on the Dumbo Feather Podcast. You might have noticed a recent run of incredible female leaders on the show. Well, they keep coming. This episode very sits with one of the world's leading teachers of mindfulness meditation, Sylvia Borstein. Sylvia is one of the people who literally brought Buddhism to the West in the 1970s, and like many of them, is Jewish. She's a mother, a grandmother, a psychotherapist, and a founding teacher of Spirit Rock, a world-renowned Buddhist meditation center in Woodica, California. The titles of Sylvia's books are telling of her good humor and simple wisdom, among them including Happiness is an Inside Job, Road Sage, It's Easier Than You Think, That's Funny, You Don't Look Buddhist, and my personal favorite, Don't Just Do Something, Sit There. It was an honor for us to have this time with Sylvia and to hear her reflections and hopes in the latter stages of her life. I'm actually curious, what did you teach about today? What was on your mind? I talked about determination and I told several stories about that. I told the story about having taken a flight from San Diego to San Francisco just last weekend because I was coming home from having taught at a health resort in Baja, California. And it's an upscale, fancy health resort. In addition to all the classes in calisthenics and athletic dance and all the body classes, they have a specialized meditation teacher every week, something about mindfulness. And I teach there four times a year, I think, for a week. And it's lovely to be there. It's a beautiful place in the desert and very built up. And the story that I told was that I had just come down on Southwest Air. And they're known for being a little bit joking around making jokes, not while they're flying, of course, but the <laughs> flight crew is surprisingly witty. Anyway, we landed, the flight crew got on and said, ladies and gentlemen, please excuse us. Someone didn't get out of the gate in time. It's going to take us a few minutes to get there. So we invite you to keep your seatbelt on. Don't take the seatbelt off. But if your phone is within reach, you can make a phone call if you want to. And we'll move into our spot as soon as we can. All very friendly and cordial. And then the plane turned on and drove into its spot. And you can hear the click off when the pilot turns off the motor. And the voice of the flight attendant from up in the cabin in the front said, get off the plane. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing about thank you very much for your patronage. Did everyone laugh? I don't know. I laughed. (laughs) And this is 10 days ago now. And I've still been thinking about it. And every time I think about it, I chuckle. I thought maybe it's a message to me about the teaching techniques that I use and other people use to give instructions for meditation in whatever tradition. Mostly I've only heard teachers in my own Theravada tradition, but 
we're Westerners and people say things like, I invite you to let your attention rest with the breath as it comes in and out of your body. And I invite you, if you want, to choose some phrase of well-wishing, like may you be well or may you thrive, that you could say as a mantra over and over again, if you want to, holding in mind a certain person. In other words, it's blessing meditation. And it's a venerable tradition in the mindfulness tradition in the West. Some people find that their attention settles down and becomes quite focused by letting the attention rest with the breath coming in and out. And some people like to listen to sounds exclusively and use that to collect their attention. And some people use phrases of benediction. But we always say it in an invitational way, if it works for you, if you feel like it. If you can think of someone that you'd like to wish well. And I decided that I said, you know what? It's so clear to me that the mind does not collect just like that. You give it a task. See if you can bring the attention to rest on anything, the breath or this or that. And it rests there for two and a half seconds. And then it starts thinking about it. It thinks, what is this doing for me? Why am I doing this? Where's the long game here? What's going to do for me? I don't like this phrase anyway. Maybe I could change it to another phrase. (laughs) These are the phrases. Just do it. (laughs) So the great thing, Barry, is we had 25 minutes for silent meditation. And I was going to, every five minutes, say, think of somebody else other than yourself and add them in and then do, may you feel this and this and this. I was going to do that every five minutes because people can't hold their attention that all along. And at that moment, my computer, for reasons unknown, disconnected itself, said no internet connection. Okay, everybody's sitting. You've disappeared from the Zoom room. I disappeared from the Zoom room. We had a storm yesterday and the power was out for a while and the power was back on. And I hadn't done all the necessary things to get my own computer integrated with it. I tiptoe out, I go in the other room, I find my iPad, and I get myself into the room, in another room on an iPad. Meantime, everybody's sitting and doing it because I said, just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Almost 20 minutes without the new prompts of different people. So without saying anything, I say, now let Brinka come in your mind. And then five minutes later, I have somebody else come in the mind. And I'm thinking, I wonder if I lost half a class or whatever happened and finished. And I said, who would like to say about their experience? And two people put up their hands and both of them said, that was incredible. I really did it. And everything changed. My mind got quiet and I felt so connected to the moment. And I felt such an intimacy in the moment. And I'm really very much buoyed up about the possibility of really working with mind states. And the second one said the same thing. That was really amazing. If I think of different people, some people I really don't want to wish them well. Said once I got started, I just was nothing but me and well-wishing and whoever I brought into my field. So I thought, okay, so much for buy your leave. And if you feel like, you know, I'm just going to (laughs) say, get off the plane. (laughs) I love it. So I'm very interested in that. I'm going to continue to explore that as a teaching technique. Instead of the invitation, it's the just... invitation, because in my experience, this is an interesting story. I started to go to mindfulness retreats in 1977, which is 45 years ago. 
And I was 41 years old, so I was not. Oh, wow. If you do the math, I'm 86 now. Sylvia, you can't be 86. I am 86 years old. I just was. So I apparently was born with genes that last long. I have had very good health. I live carefully. So I was 41, and it's 45 years ago. And I went on my first mindfulness retreat. And one of my teachers on that retreat is with Joseph Goldstein, who's very revered and known worldwide and my good friend and teacher. And one day I was out walking across the campus and here was Joseph walking past me. It's one of those things where you think serendipitous things happen in your life. And if you're alert to it, it could change your whole life. And here is Joseph walking on that same path with somebody else that he's talking to. As they pass me, I don't hear what this other person asks him as a question, but I heard him say back to this other person, well, you know, nothing is really worth thinking about. And I thought, wow, my teacher, who I admire so much, says nothing is worth thinking about. That's really astounding. But then I thought about the fact that in my meditation practice, every time I went in the meditation hall, I sat there. And I thought about things. I'm very comfortable. I was young enough, so my body felt all right. I could sit still and sit still and think about this and think about that. And they'd given the instruction about let your attention rest just with one thing and let the attention rest just with your breath. Every once in a while, I let the attention rest with the breath. But really, mostly I thought about resting the attention with the breath and what I was just going to do. And I wonder whether... I could somehow learn this well enough to teach it. I'm a psychologist and I was teaching psychology at the time. Is this going to help me with my teaching? What if I introduced it this way or that way? So I was not unhappy with being on retreat. I liked being on retreat. I liked that it was quiet. I liked that everybody left me alone. And I felt comfortable. And he says, well, you know, nothing is really worth thinking about. Ah, How could he say that? So then I thought to myself, well, I have to give up thinking if nothing is worth thinking about. (laughs) So I went back to my seat and I thought, I am not going to think a single thought. Only going to have the experience of one breath after another. Anybody who's done a little bit of meditation, which I take it you have at least, maybe a lot. You take a breath, okay, in, out, another one, in, out, another one, in, out. And then a voice says, I wonder if this is the only instruction or... I wonder if I put the wash in the dryer, because mind makes thoughts. It just does. I sat down and I said, not thinking a single thought, breath in and it's out. And you start to feel a thought coming in from sort of the left field of your brain or the right. When I told my colleagues some years later that how I learned to really develop samadhi or really not unwavering attention, as I was just, they said, that doesn't sound very comfortable. I said, I wasn't very comfortable, but I was very serious about one pointed attention. You do that a little bit, and all of a sudden, all that clutter and flutter and all that commentary and all those other interesting things that are just lurking right out there trying to get your attention, they give up, they go away. After a while, they kind of say, well, I guess she means business. <laughs> we can't get any airtime. They go someplace else. And all of a sudden, the body gets focused and relaxed. And in the mind, for me, it felt like an elevator went down another floor. 
and you're in another place. Now, that's not to say that you stay that all the time and you don't sometimes, it's not always like that. But I realized that that instruction of let your attention be with the breath, they really mean it. Just do it. Nothing else. And I think maybe something about the cordiality of Western culture and the fact that if you feel like, if you want to, da, 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 get off the plane, just do it. <laughs> I love it. It makes me think so many things. I have your quote here. There is no situation in which paying careful, kind attention would not be the most helpful response. Exactly. Because the icon of the Buddha's teaching is the Four Noble Truths. And the first noble truth is the truth that life is problematic for everybody. It doesn't mean, oh, unfortunately, I've had a problematic life. Everybody's life is by its very nature problematic. We have bodies that don't always feel good. And they grow and they change and they get sick and they get well and they get hot and they get cold and hungry and sleepy and everything else. And our minds are always changing. I could be in the best of moods and really feeling good about things. And the phone rings, ring, ring, and I pick it up. And a voice that I recognize says, hello, ma. And it doesn't sound good. Food is out the window. It's gone. The moods are ephemeral, really. They come up and they change and they're up and they change. I like to talk about hopeful these days. If our mood is relatively on the stable side and we're not feeling hopeless and depressed to begin with, we hear something and we think, well, not glad to hear that, but maybe they'll fix it. If we're on the other side of the equation and we already feel not hopeful, it's really bad. Get another piece of news and we think, ugh. That just proves it's really terrible. It's all over, which is really why these days I think it is so important to be taking care of one's own mental health and keeping it up. We need all the buoyancy we can get these days. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that because I'm so moved by the childhood that you describe having in your books. And you describe this generous, generative, spacious, loving childhood, this home that you grew up in that was safe and good. It was sort of the essence of goodness in many ways, because I feel when human beings can raise other human beings in that whole container, it's mm -hmm. one of the most incredible things human beings do or can do. And so it's very moving how you come from that foundation of wholeness and goodness and love. And that mm -hmm. seems to have informed so much of your life and your teaching and your own practice. I think I've been really intrigued by this idea for a while now, and I haven't heard anybody really talk about it because maybe it's controversial, but it feels like we're taking cues from the traumatized. And algorithms and social media and our phones and the internet and our addiction to technology orients us towards the more traumatic and traumatized both information and leadership. So I'm just compelled by untraumatized leaders and teachers and people who have a real knowledge of wholeness to bring to the world. Is that something that you've thought about? Is that something anybody's talking about? that we should be orienting towards people who know something of love. There must be legions of writings about the salubrious effect of having a comfortable childhood in which you weren't afraid. And two things, Barry, 
I'm surprised that it's rare. People, they say, you know, I love your laugh. You've got such a good laugh. Or you always have such a good attitude. And, you know, how do you do it? And I said, well, these days I actually do do it consciously as a practice because I watch the arising of aversive thoughts in my mind. And I really work with them not taking any root there. I think to whatever degree I'm able to do that, it's not only from 45 years of practice. It is from the fact that I have the very good fortune to have been born to people who are mild-mannered best friends with sense of humor. And I was an only child. And I lived with my grandmother as well. So I was an only child and an only grandchild. And they all thought I was terrific. (laughs) I never had anybody scold me or tell me I was doing the wrong thing. And it turns out to be a very rare upbringing. People don't have it. Mm -hmm. They had parents who scolded, people who hit them, people who were mean to them, people who were mean to each other and they witnessed it. I think that it's not impossible to learn a new mind through practice, through habituating your mind to kind response and discovering that that feels good, through hanging out with people who share your values. I think I had a leg up Mm. because my parents were mild-mannered, good friends. I like to think my children did that when they were raising their children. I was actually going to ask, as a mother of three children, and I know that you were a mother of four and now a great-grandmother, I loved how you wrote in the book, Don't Just Do Something, Sit There. I love all your titles to all your books. They make me laugh so much. The one I've got in front of me, Happiness is an Inside Job. Don't Just Do Something, Sit There. In that book, you write about how most of your colleagues were meditating in Asian monasteries while you were reading Ladies' Home Journal in Kansas and Mm. raising kids. And I'm interested in this as a mother of children at an age who still need me constantly. What's your take on mindfulness for modern people who can't go on a retreat every fortnight? And also, I'm just that busy mind, that mind that can't get to rest and having mothered through the pandemic. In Melbourne, we had the longest lockdown of anywhere in the world outside of China. My nervous system is still trying to come out of all of that and through to some kind of imagination of the future. But I'm just living in this present moment with my family and they orient towards our nervous systems. They Mm -hmm. are constantly looking to us to hold the space for them to develop their language, nervous system, ways of thinking about the world. And Sylvia, I'm orienting towards Netflix more than meditation, (laughs) more often than not. What do I do? What do we all do? If Netflix is causing your mind to be more relaxed, then do the Netflix, honestly. I was teaching a group of physicians in a certain hospital, and I was a special guest in a day long of self-healing. The medical staffs in hospitals have had a terrible two years. They're overworked and understaffed and beleaguered by firsthand awareness of how many people have been sick and dying. It was just a day for them to sit quietly and take care of themselves and think about self-healing things that they could do. And so the first thing I said, that you can relax because I promise you in our whole, it's actually a weekend, in our whole weekend together, I'm not going to give you a single instruction about add a period of meditation to your daily routine. You already have too many things in your daily routine. I am going to talk about mindfulness practice 
Mindfulness is what you do when you stay in touch with what's going on moment to moment and make a gracious response to it. As you're walking up to the next door down the hospital ward and you're going in to talk to people, have your hand on the doorknob. If you look up and you say, oh, this is Mr. John Smith, who I remember yesterday told me he's been out of work because of this illness and he's worried about it. And he's worried about his wife taking care of the whole family at home. And I hope for myself that as I go in and spend this time with him, in these limited 10 minutes, I can make him feel better and then go in. So that 10 seconds to think, I oriented you in the present moment, which means you don't have a thousand other things in your mind. And it put you in a feeling of warm graciousness to John Smith because you're thinking, wow, I'm the person who not only could cure him, but maybe could give him a moment of connection to hopefulness. And then you feel better. So that was a moment of mindfulness practice, but didn't take up any extra time. It wasn't 20 minutes in a chair in the dark. It was in the course of looking at a person's chart, configuring the situation. It's not this person is sick. I have to do this and then that and that. that. I get to be able for the next 10 minutes to let this person know that his work is important and that I am grateful for the opportunity to be helpful in his life. And they are a whole person. Whether the hospital is full of 100 other whole people, you are a whole person there. So much of what you talk about has this beautiful, simple articulation about incredibly complex things. And I love how you talk about living with grace and gracefulness. It's such an old word. It's such a rich word. And it's incredibly hard to do between the impulse and the response to find the grace. Especially when you feel beleaguered because bells are ringing and people are rushing by. Let's not forget, Barry, we did two of the four noble truths. The second noble truth is we make it worse complicated by responding in an unthoughtful way to what's happening when what's happening is startling. We could respond to them thoughtfully, carefully, and tenderly is a good word, and then not make them more complicated. Like you're just about to go home from your job, let's say, as Dr. X in this hospital. And someone rings your phone and says, we've just had someone come into the emergency room. Could you come right now on your way home? And your mind thinks, I was just going to get out of here. And you can think, oh, dear, I didn't expect this, but it's what's happening. Let me do this in the best possible way. I'll feel better later. So the first novel truth, the stuff keeps happening. How we greet it can either make it worse or not. The third is don't make it worse. Learn that in between that, ugh, I didn't want to be here, and the response out of your mouth, yes, I'll be right there. Thank you for letting me know. Is the mind that says, don't do that. You'll feel better if you go and respond without your teeth gritting. We don't have to make it worse. We could, in fact, have sweethearts. When I talk to myself, I say, sweetheart, don't get upset about this. It comes up all the time. I tell people that my mindfulness practice is I am mindful moment to moment. I try to think, not of my breath, but moment to moment of the arising of aversive feelings in my mind, the arising of fully this, or I can't find my keys, or I love they don't it. have anything on this menu that I like. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking that it seems to require greatness and maturity to 
really let those noble truths drop in to daily practice. You are one of the great Western teachers on mindfulness. You've brought ancient Eastern tradition, woven it into your sacred Jewish cultural heritage. You are very learned and I don't hear much grit between you and the wisdom that you've gotten in flow with those noble truths and you've embedded them in your daily lives. And most of us live lives. I have access to wisdom and more often than not, there's a wise berry And then there's a mundane, full of aversive thoughts, as you call them, (laughs) grindy, gritty, gnarly berry. That wise berry and gnarly berry are not often befriended. I'm around the age you were when you went to your first mindfulness retreat. I know a lot of wisdom keepers and I have wisdom in me. I can tap into it. But, you know, I've got a cold, my head is a bit sore, I'm working, the kids were sick, la, 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 la. There's so much of that. That intervention, especially as the world is tumbling into this transition, there's so much trauma bubbling up. There's so much fear. There's so much anxiety. I hear what you're saying. And that mind of mine that's still very engaged in, bugger it, no one ordered food for the pantry. I've got to now like stop what I'm doing and fill the kitchen with food so the kids have healthy food. I'm doing it wrong. I'm a terrible mother. And worse and worse and escalating. (laughs) We're actually urged to do that by advertising, by bombardments with views of people that give you the feeling I'm not doing enough, I'm not on top of it all. There's a few things that are true, that everything keeps passing, that negativity ends by hatred, and getting even never works. Getting finished with grudges really relaxes the mind. And having a good opinion of yourself and being compassionate of yourself makes you feel better and everybody else feel better. I've known that now for 40 years, say. But I think that what happened is I knew it a little bit. And what happens is you know it better and better and better. And Mm -hmm. I am fortunate enough to be living long enough that I see when my mind is about to go down a path and not do it. But it didn't happen yesterday. It's been that way for a little while now. And it's always getting better. For myself, another thing has changed as I've gotten older. Your children are still young. Mine are grown. All of my children are past 60. They have white beards. I mean, it's really incredible. I started to really learn, like in my body, that if I take the road of Ah, I'm going to fight with it. It just fatigues the mind to go on a little self-survey. You think you're going to feel better. I wonder, how are you finding in your teaching and in your different communities that you're connecting with, how are people dealing with conflict? Is anyone doing it wisely? And you wanted to talk about hopeful leadership. What do you see ahead of us? This is the most politically fraught moment in my life that I can remember. There have always been malign influences in politics, but not to this extent, and not with the country having as many people in it and as many people who are armed. I do worry about what it's going to be like for my children and my grandchildren, and I'm not not active about it. Just before I came on this program, I got a reminder about a three-hour meeting that's happening on Monday. A thousand grandmothers for peace. I think they're more than a thousand. 
but it's one of the organizations that I belong to. So I do what I can in the real world. I'm on a list that people call me when they say there's a protest happening in 10 minutes in front of the banks. So if you want to come down, we have signs for you to carry. So I'm down carrying signs among the other old women who are called up because it's a big deal to get an old woman up there. And I really work hard to not be adversarial in my speech, not be hateful in my speech. You actually write here, this is the most beautiful thing. Forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. I remember hearing that. Somebody told that to me. Mm. I really work hard not to have anybody in my life that I've ruptured a relationship with that I don't speak with. I have a very close relationship with two cousins who live not so far from us and were practically neighbors for 60 years. And um, we haven't had a lot to do with them. We meet them on religious holidays because we do the same religion. But we've avoided each other because when we were young, since we have different political opinions, it was caustic and the conversation got prickly. But we are very close friends now and we meet often and the conversation is never prickly. They vote completely the opposite from the way I do, but they're lovely people. And they took very good care of me and being sure that my husband was well taken care of during the time he was dying last year. So you get to see that on a certain level, it doesn't matter. It's just what they think. They think differently from what I think. And on that, they have children and grandchildren, and I have children and grandchildren. And we have endless things to talk about with the children and grandchildren. We don't have to talk about politics. I don't get it, but I don't have to. You don't get it, but you don't have to. I love the spaciousness of that. And I didn't realize that your husband had passed, Sylvia. I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you very much. You know, he was 89 years old and we had been married for 66 years and he died at home with his family taking care of him, not in pain. So it was fine. Grateful for his life. Huh. Was he afraid to die? I don't think so. By the end, discomfort by the end, I mean, it was clear that he was going to die and everybody dies. Have you spent much time thinking about that in your years of teaching and practice? I do. I think it's the main worry that people have. They think they're worried about other things. I might be bankrupt. I might be this. I might be that. But I think we're all worried about I won't be able to take care of myself. We all have a shared vulnerability that we are all going to die. And it could happen to us when we're 89, like he was, or we could be younger. And it could, may it not happened to our children before us, which is the worst thing you can think about in terms of things that can happen. It's a very vulnerable thing to be a person. My grandfather used to say, it's very hard to be a person. And <laughs> he used the Yiddish word for person, which is mensch, which really denotes a certain kind of a person, like a person of character, mm-hmm. a person who you can depend on. I love that. I grew up with Yiddish in my home as well. You speak it? I understand a lot of it. It's beloved to me. It's in there. Yeah, it's in there. I heard this phrase recently. The phrase was that we spend the first half of our lives living out our karma and the second half of our life living out our dharma. Have you heard that before? No, I didn't say it. So, (laughs) Do you think that rings true? 
Can you speak to that in any way? Well, karma, that's a whole different issue to talk about. Some people, I think, erroneously think of karma as a debt that you have to pay for having done something wrong in a last life. So that's the thing that I don't talk about last lives or teach about because I don't know about them. And after all, I am my father's child who was proud of his having come to the United States at nine as a immigrant with no language other than Yiddish and then went all the way through school and got to be a mathematics professor and a serious scientist. And he said, you know, I don't hold with that sort of stuff. That's okay. Because it's a belief. And the Buddha said, the first thing that goes away if you really have clarity and wisdom is a belief system. Because it's just a belief system. And it could be wrong. And who knows? And everybody's got a different one. Karma actually means action. So I don't mind using the word karma in a sentence that's something like, if I am nasty in my interpersonal relationships with everybody, If I'm a bitter person, that the karma of that is when I'm old, nobody will want to be a friend of mine. So it's not in the next life. It's now. It's tomorrow. If I act in a certain way, actions have responses to it. That might be the response to it. I like the part of your sentence of about we live our dharma. Because the dharma part, in that sense, means we manifest the truth of what we've discovered. And maybe also in what you've just said, which I love so much, and I've been thinking about a lot, that expression, maybe as I've understood it, is the first half of our life is a lot of doing. Mm -hmm. And that second half of our life should be more of the being. I think that would be nice if all of our lives were being, but we have so many things that we really have to do. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that on most days. I have appointments with people to talk about this or that or you, but I don't have to till the soil. <laughs> <laughs> and I teach some, but very little. There are days when I don't have to show up here or there. I'm old, so my social security pays for my health care. So I don't have to work in the same way that I used to. I can relax. I'm comfortable where I live and I have friends and family. But I really feel like one of the things that I still have a chance to do, people discover not even just when you're old. I discovered it when I was young that every time I sat down, I said, okay, I have a half hour. That the first part of it, it's a spontaneous examination of conscience. I discovered that the mind does that without my asking it. So that if I sit down and I'm beginning to sit quietly, it might say to me unexpectedly, you forgot to call your aunt back yesterday and you said you would. It's not a terrible thing. My better self goes around checking about what I didn't do right. Do you ever notice that when you sit down sometimes and meditate? It's keeping a score in there. So I like it when I go on a meditation retreat. I had always a little paper next to where I was sitting where I kept the list of who I forgot to say enough thank yous and who I said I'd be in touch and I wasn't and who I had told all those things that I would or would not do. And I did them anyway. And I make a list of karma to finish cleaning up when I get home. So I think that the mind and the heart, which don't make much of a distinction between, has the nature of wanting to 
unencumber itself of things that make it uncomfortable. I think we're wired to feel integrated with the world, in other words. Nobody said that, but I think it's true. I've discovered that, especially in the last few years, when the pandemic was going on and my husband was dying, it was kind of like a long retreat because you couldn't go out, you couldn't go anyplace, you couldn't do your normal things. There was a level of alarm always. I discovered that my mind was thinking kinder thoughts spontaneously. One day I was taking my dog for a walk and there was a couple walking on the other side of the street. And I looked up and it looked like one of my cousins who couldn't have been around here because he doesn't live right near. And I thought, oh, that looks like cousin X. And usually when I think about that, the next thought is about why I don't like cousin X. <laughs> In what way she had offended me 14 years ago at somebody's bar mitzvah or something rather that I still had in my mind. And in place of the thought about she shouldn't have said that thing, I thought to myself, you know, she had a much harder childhood than I did. Mm. And her father abused alcohol too much. And her parents were often shouting at each other. And I didn't think, now I'm not going to think that that former blaming a thought about Cousin X. My mind was actually thinking a thought that allowed my mind to relax and become more expansive and think to itself, well, Cousin X. Had a bad upbringing. No wonder she said that thing. I don't have to be carrying around that. But the interesting thing about it, Barry, is I didn't plan to. I noticed that my mind was cleaning itself up by itself. So one thing I feel like I'm downloading from you in this conversation is that any mindful, spacious replacement thoughts or a moment where another thought can come in over a lifetime. I love what you said, that we're wired to want to feel integrated with the world. Even when we feel out of whack with the world or we're having asynchronous or averse thoughts or we're grinding in life or even depressed, the mind is composting. The mind is wanting to get to wholeness, wanting to get to integration. And our job is in many ways trying to get out of our own way. No, no, exactly. And I think it sounds a little bit woo-woo, and as a daughter of the scientist, you believe in that woo-woo. <laughs> I'll tell you one more woo-woo. It's not woo-woo, but it's the same story, essentially. My neighbor over the fence has a gardener who comes every week. So first of all, I have a bad thought about that because you don't need every... And people are using... Uh, leaf blowers. Yeah, they're the worst. Uh, and I am surrounded by seven houses right around me. So someone's always blowing. The Wednesday blower has been blowing for years. The usual thing that happens is he starts to blow and I'm sitting here working at my computer. And I think, oh, there goes that. I have to write to the Board of Supervisors and see if they can get an ordinance about people have to get battery operated leaf blowers at least so they're not polluting the environment. And so they're not polluting the air and they're not annoying me. And during the whole pandemic, I was sitting here one day, it was raining outside, and in the middle of the rain, everything, all of a sudden, vroom, it's back again, the leaf blower. And I got all ready for my mind to go into its little rant about the Board of Supervisors. And instead, it said, oh, I'm so glad that he's still got a job and can take care of his family in this. So many people have been laid off. And I was so surprised that my mind thought a much nicer thought. 
than I would have thought if I had gotten in there first. I think my mind is purifying itself. And it happens all the time now. And I want to live long enough so that I cover all the people that I have some little caveat about and it fixes itself. I'm not finding myself wrong for having less than delighted opinions about people. I don't want to have less than warm feelings about people. Even the people who are doing terrible stuff, it doesn't make me better thinking bad thoughts because I have to live in that mind. Hmm. So I'd like to purify my mind. That's it. I hope I have enough time to do it. I have a big list of people I know. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Sylvia, what a magnificent life's work and endeavor. And I had questions for you around endeavor and ambition and purpose and whether that's just vanity, but I love the way that you've framed it. And framing is everything, isn't it? The way we frame things, because we can always frame them from either side of the coin, the Mm -hmm. negative or the positive, the useful or the really not helpful Maybe we could just finish on coming back to something you said right at the beginning of our conversation about hopefulness in this moment, because I think for myself, and I know for a lot of people that read Dumbo Feather and listen to us, they're trying to lean into this moment with purpose and with hope. Mm -hmm. What did you want to say about that earlier? I have time to become less sure that the world is going to save itself on time, because on top of everybody's problems locally and nationally and internationally. There's a COVID that gets everybody and the whole planet is anyway melting. I have some hope, though, that it is so universal, that problem, that at some point, enough people will say, we have to change it now. When I'm teaching, I get really excited about everybody wants their children to drink clean water and to survive their first five years and to be able to do some work and to be able to live to adulthood. We share that with everybody. Everybody wants to go home in peace and go to sleep in peace, wise up in peace, have dinner with your family, have a birthday. We're not that different. If it doesn't work, I want to be among those people who thought it would. And I want to be among the people who are the consolers at the end. I don't want to be angry about it. I want to do the best I can for the benefit of other people's children and mine. A huge thanks to Sylvia for sharing her timeless wisdom with us. She will feature in our upcoming issue of Dumbo Feather magazine. If you're not already a subscriber, you can go to dumbofeather.com and soak up more goodness like this in print. Thank you to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for their work editing our podcast, to our partners, Birkenstock Australia, and of course, to you for your company. We'll see you next time on the Dumbo Feather podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Birkenstock Australia. Discover the simple beauty and health benefits of walking naturally on this earth. Birkenstock, tradition since 1774.